This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. Hey, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Pretty good. You know, with the pandemic going on, it's kind of getting crazy here in the world right now. Israel, we're getting into the second wave. Crazy times, you know? Yeah, definitely crazy times. (laughs) So, um, I would love to learn a little bit about what you do. So I know that you work uh, in National Building Society, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love to learn more about what you do over there. I know it's against uh, fraud, right? Something like that. Something against fraud. Yeah, so a number of things that we do. So we've, as a building society, we are owned by our members. So we're different to a banker in that respect. So we don't have large shareholders, etc. We were set up with the simple purpose of helping people come together to save for the things that matter to them in their life. Over the years, we've grown massively and now we're the world's largest building society. And we have our kind of fundamental offerings. So we still do mortgages and specialize in homes and helping people save. But we also have current accounts, loans, credit cards, and other financial products that I guess One of the main differences for us is that our members are still at the heart of everything we do. So from the decisions we make to the people we work with in our partnerships, right through to the content we create. That's amazing. Uh, I'm not sure we have this concept here in Israel. Uh, Oh, interesting. Maybe it's not the same thing, but we don't have something like that in Israel. It's pretty cool. It's the first time I'm hearing about like, some kind of a banking system that operates by the community and that's by like very wealthy people. Oh, cool. So uh, that's pretty cool. So as a content creator, how does it, um, you said that uh, the community impact the content that you create. So um, what's your process uh, of that looks like? Good question. So... Thank you. So I guess like any content designer, UX writer, we're big on research um, and we're really lucky. So we work closely with our our research team in making sure that we've got a real clear member-driven purpose for all of our content. So I guess one of the hardest things about content design and UX writing is moving away from just creating content for the sake of it to creating content that really supports and helps members. We call them members. They're essentially customers because they're part of, yeah, our building society for the members. So we involve them in, in lots of different ways. So we do a lot of member research and it's been interesting during lockdown because we used to have regular research sessions going on in our studio um, where we would kind of be using typical methods like highlighter testing, yeah, red pen, green pen, clothes testing, etc. But just making sure that with um, all of the content we're creating, we're getting that member voice and feedback there. And I think one of the most important things for me is, as well as making sure people can find content, they can use it, but making sure they can really understand it, especially in finance, because things can get really overcomplicated it can be a real barrier to people carrying out basic tasks that everyone should be included in and able to do easily. So yeah, making sure that we're being um, simple, accessible, inclusive, and really easy to understand, even when we're talking about um, 
what could be some quite complex financial concepts is really important and having members at the heart of that is crucial. Great answer. Um, I, uh, you, you talked about a few concepts that related to uh, research and testing, like the highlighter testing. You said the red pigment testing. What, what was that? Yeah, red pen. Oh, <laughs> red pen. Red pen. <laughs> Sounds so, like penguin. <laughs> yeah, so red pen. And uh, what was the third one? Close testing. Close testing. I mean, so um, we have a lot of people in our audience that want to get into UX writing. And they would love to learn this kind of testing methodologies. So what are those exactly? Yeah, of course. Um, so highlighter testing and red pen, green pen are quite similar. So red pen, green pen would be really simple and you can do it um, online or face-to-face. And you basically give people a passage of text or content and they would use a red pen for anything that was unclear and a green pen for things that they get and is clear. Highlighter testing you can use in a similar way. So people can highlight in one color things that yeah, aren't very clear or are slightly confusing and in another color things that are, are clear. You can also use it in different ways. So depending on what you're looking at in your research, if you're looking at do people feel more confident in this? Does it help them feel confident? Are they likely to use the service? Um, Etc. And you can kind of tailor it. So yeah, confidence is one that comes up, highlight which bits help you to feel more confident in the service and any bits that make you feel, yeah, unconfident. So that's a really useful test. Closed testing is um, when words or phrases are removed and then people fill them in. And it's a good indication of comprehension. So they say about 60% right. that shows that people have a good general level of comprehension of the passage of text. What we find it really useful for, though, however, is synonyms and getting an understanding of people's everyday language. So one that comes up quite a lot is as a passage of text. And um, the word that's been removed is ordinary, but everyone will say normal, which makes complete sense because actually we probably use normal a lot more. And we had similar the other day with it was upgrade and everyone said extension. Like it was like 96% of people. And it's just really, really useful. So as well as a general feel for people's comprehension, actually checking what is the everyday language that people are using to describe these things, which is what we're all kind of, which is great. They're just a few. I think the good thing about them is that they are easily accessible. You can use them in lab sessions, in guerrilla testing. We've been using them remote recently. So yeah, just really good ways of kind of getting a feel for the, how your content is going to perform with real people. Thank you for your answer. Very uh, elaborate answer. And I wanted to know if uh, you said it recently, you've been doing all of these testings uh, remotely. So is there any tips or tricks to do that kind of stuff remotely now that everyone has to work remotely? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I think that It's brought up all kinds of new challenges in a way because lots of these things, their success is based on how you facilitate the research because no one wants anything to feel like a spelling test. If they feel like it's a right or wrong, then immediately you're going to get bias and you're not going to get natural responses. 
So we will put a lot of effort into making sure that people know that we're really not testing them. And if anything, you know, it's, it's on us. So, um, yeah, rather than going, you know, what's confusing you kind of, you know, what could be clearer, et cetera. So it's all kind of, yeah, on us and not in any way reflecting um, us testing them. They're helping us to make content better and clearer. So when you're doing that face-to-face, you can have that conversation, you can give people space, etc. When you're doing that in writing, how we frame the activities um, and make sure we're introducing them in the right way has taken a lot of care. And we've been doing some pilots recently and, and luckily, largely people have got it without questions. It's been fine. We found that people have actually been a lot more honest with their answers. So with the closed test, as well as the, you know, the general kind of answers that we've get, we'd have some people, yeah, saying some things they probably wouldn't say if they were going to relate to you face to face. So I guess the benefits of that, that maybe people feel they can be a bit more open and honest when they're not sat in front of someone who they think might have been involved in that content. So that, that's a good thing in many ways. Awesome. And uh, what is the recommended tool that you can recommend uh, while doing something like that? Yeah, good point. We've been building our own bespoke tool, but I know a lot of people have been doing closed tests and highlights tests in Google Docs, and there's a few templates for those. There's also a tool called copytesting.com, which is brilliant. And that kind of works in a similar way to highlight a test where people outline what's clear, what's not very clear, and then they have to give a bit of context around why they've given that. So why, yeah, why they didn't feel that content was very clear or why they felt it was clear. But it's really useful and it's all remote. So we definitely recommend that. Amazing. I'm just checking copytesting.com. It looks amazing and I never heard about it. So thank you for that tip. Pretty cool. (laughs) Nice. Thank you for all of the answers. I know that uh, you are also author of four books, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's something I'm I'm very uh, curious to learn more. Like as a professional, how do you find the time to write books and to, you know, I've seen, you have four books uh, that I see, uh, How to Be Perfectly Imperfect, The Art of Being Single, Iconic Women of Color, and you're working on female sporting icons, right? Yeah. How is your process of writing a book looks like? If it's okay to ask. <laughs> yeah, 100%. So yeah, I will talk about it, but I wouldn't recommend my process of writing a book to anyone because <laughs> it largely involves me spending lots of time at the weekend in my pajamas, in front of a laptop, eating too many carbohydrates. But actually, so a good tip for my last book, I started using Trello to structure um, the chapters and different people's profiles. And that was really, really helpful. I think with the other ones, yeah, it was definitely a learning for me, just in terms of being able to document pieces of research and snippets and things that come into your mind. Because I think like many creatives and many writers, it doesn't necessarily just work on the basis that you're in front of your laptop and then it all comes to you and it's perfect. So I'd be on the bus or, you know, I'd be in bed or I'd be going for a walk and I'd suddenly have an idea. So Trello being on your phone is just really useful of just keeping track of everything. And then when you're coming to writing, you've got a much better structure. You've got your checklist for things that you need to 
yeah, answer, approve, etc. So yeah, I think just little things to help keep you on track and also just the loveliness of being able to move things over from like, yeah, this stuff to done and just gives you a little boost, definitely. Amazing. I'm asking about the process of creating a book, which is, first of all, mind-blowing, the fact that you create, that you wrote already three books, uh, because I meet with a lot of people that's finding it difficult to manage their article writing process. So this process is also re- relevant if you are currently building your content strategy and you have different ideas and you want to organize them in a Trello board. So definitely organizing like that is super helpful if you actually want to get it done because you know I started to write a book a few times before and I just uh, I wasn't consistent enough and I think uh, if I had some kind of a process that would you know make me I know it's internal right but uh, if I had anything that uh, could help me to manage this a little bit better I'm pretty sure that I would actually publish a book already but uh, One day, maybe one day. Yeah, definitely. And I think I learned a lot with my last book. And one thing that really helped me was getting out of my flat, essentially. So I think if you're constantly in the same space, you start to resent it and you start to think, oh, I've got so much to do. And you're looking at your laptop. So I would go out and I would spend days in different coffee shops And I'll be in different surroundings and that would spark things within me. And I really found that my mindset changed with that, with just getting away from, yeah, looking at my laptop screen in the same four walls constantly and just like, yeah, having a coffee and a cake in different coffee shops. And yeah, just, I felt that was a lot more productive for me, for sure. And um, What can we do about that imposter syndrome? You know, I think I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm not sure that I have enough things to say or my, that my idea is great enough or something like that. So is there any way to overcome that? Yeah, this comes up a lot. Um, I was thinking about this and talking to someone about this earlier. And I think that as content people, we need to get rid of this feeling of, The need to do things perfectly or to be perfect and I would go as far as to say I don't ever think that I've done a perfect piece of content design in my career I think it's the learnings along the way and the things that you don't get quite right and you learn from them they're the things that help you be the best that you can be and I think sometimes we put too much pressure on ourselves and To have this perfect approach and then we feel like before we can talk about anything it needs to be perfect and I think for us as a community we almost need to normalize talking about the bumps along right. the way and the mm-hmm. things that haven't gone quite right and what we've learned from them because with everything that doesn't go quite right you learn something from it um, and it makes you better but I think unfortunately there's probably a bit of stigma on you You know it needs to be perfect and I need to have all of my user needs and it needs to be perfectly designed and then it needs to do this but I personally don't believe that there is such a thing as perfect perfect content good content um, and doing the best with the information you have and the circumstances that you're in which are constantly changing yeah you know I think uh, that many people are have background in uh, design school and stuff like that and in design school, 
you are always constantly asked to to do it perfectly and you know don't sleep at night uh, work on it for like one month until it's completely perfect and i think that's like in the internet or in the world or with everything going on like when you're doing content design it's an iterative process and you can always improve it afterwards and yeah. the delivery is much more important than making it perfect 100% and I think actually there's a risk with perfect because if it's perfect for us and we've got it to 100% there's no guarantee at that point that it's perfect for the user so all we should be doing really is handing over things that are at best 80% to the user and then learning from them and adapting exactly. to that many times uh, you think that something in your mind is like oh I'm a genius this is the best solution ever <laughs> and then like you figure out that nobody clicks on it or nobody likes yeah. it <laughs> and that happened to me many times like having the wrong assumptions that's fine you know I'm, I'm not being tough with myself it's like I learned from it and I improved it and now it's better yeah and I think that also UTIP is really relevant for is is relevant for people that are building their own portfolios right now because a lot of people is talking to me these days. They're trying to make it perfect and they're trying to and they they're looking for a job, but they are pausing the process of looking for a job until their portfolio is perfect. And I'm like, you know, just put the damn thing out and spread it to the world and do your best and. Uh, send links to people and get some feedback and always improve it. It's never going to be perfect and uh, uh, just deliver. That's the, my tip. Cool. <laughs> Amazing. So I, I've seen that you're also um, a co-chair in an organization called the BIMA, right? Yeah. So what is that exactly? Um, it's the British Interactive Media Association. So it's essentially a collective of professionals. It always feels funny saying professionals from the digital design and creative industries. So there are separate councils for specific things. So there's one um, about inclusivity and accessibility. There's one for people working in client service. There's one for AI. And my one is one of the area ones. So it's a Southwest one, which covers Bristol and some, some other areas. So at the moment, we're just looking at council members and who's to get involved, what our strategy looks like. For me, inclusion is a really important yeah, part of this. So having a council that feels really inclusive, I personally feel that we have as much to learn from people who are completely new to the design creative industry as they have to learn from us. So making sure that we're giving back as well as just having a platform for us to kind of talk, share ideas and that within the council, we've got a good representation of people at all levels of all genders, ethnicities, etc. is super important. So yeah, early stages, but, um, but exciting potential wise. Congrats. Um, do you have tips about, uh, you're talking about uh, inclusive in uh, design. So, what do you feel like we're missing today and how can we improve as a community in that manner? Good, good question. So I've been yeah, reflecting on this a lot. I think that as a community, we've got to a point where we could be better, but we're doing all right in terms of understanding the importance of accessibility. 
So making sure that our content and experiences um, are accessible to people with disabilities or might have additional kind of access needs or be using assistive technologies or all of the above. I think in terms of the wider frame of inclusivity, so making sure that our designs um, can be understood and aren't putting the barriers in the way of the full spectrum of human diversity, so gender, ethnicity, race, mental health, etc., social status, age, exactly. I don't think that we're doing as well as we could. So I think our priority and challenge for me at the moment is let's look at accessibility and, you know, as an umbrella inclusion and start to understand where there's room for improvement. So I know there's been lots in terms of the language that's being used and lots of language that has connotations with the slave trade, but there's a lot more that we can be doing. So age is a really important factor because digital literacy, I don't think we design... um, considering different levels of digital literacy. So we still kind of do, you know, this is a really quick, easy, fast experience. And actually it's probably not for someone that, you know, like my nan that's like 90 on an iPad, like zoomed in, who didn't grow up using an iPad, you know, everything might take a little bit longer and might need a little bit more guidance. And as part of their experience, they might need to talk to someone on the phone. Um, Digital might not always be appropriate. So Looking at the wider and broader spectrum, I think, and knowing that um, accessibility is a great, great step on our journey, but we've got a lot more to do in terms of designing and creating content that's truly inclusive. Right. We have a Sarah Richards accessibility guideline. And it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe in the UK. Yeah. And I think the good thing, you know, with accessibility is accessibility and inclusive language is it's good for everyone isn't it and we need to kind of move away from this thing it's like we've been working on accessibility as an upfront standard so accessibility right from the start so rather than going oh we've done these things how do we make them accessible like we start with accessibility like that's our baseline yeah we design for everyone as a start and we don't look back and then go oh actually what can we do to make it accessible Like we need to be starting with that frame of reference. And I think thinking beyond just designing something for ourselves, which is easy to do, but, you know, we are all massively biased in the sense that we work in digital. We understand this stuff. So naturally we're getting that curse of knowledge coming through, which is why it's so important. If we can't be um, researching with users all the time, like just checking in on the struggles that people are facing and understanding those a little bit more is so important. And um, in Hebrew, for example, when you want to write for someone and you want to be personal, like not plural, but singular, so you must to address it as a male or a female uh, because that's our language. Like, yeah. So we have a big inclusivity challenge where we want to create it's always a challenge between like how personal could you be versus inclusive because if you write it like you write it to a guy immediately you wipe out 50% of the population of the people that's using your platform that's a big microcopy challenge you know I'm just sharing in Hebrew so I want to know if you can share maybe one of uh, if you have any 
similar challenge when you're trying to be inclusive or inaccessible and there is something that's like it's difficult but we must address it like before anything else yeah that's a good question i guess what we're coming up against a lot at the moment is so language that has connotations with the slave trade per se and actually the more you get into it the more surprised you are at, yeah, the amount of language that has these connotations. What's a slave trade? So, you know, historically... Yeah, um, I know, but... Uh, yeah. Of course. So there's lots of historic language. So things like nitty-gritty is a phrase, like it's a colloquialism that's used oh, really? um, in England, yeah. What? And, I didn't know. Pardon? I didn't know that. That's uh, amazing. Yeah. So it's, it's funny. So you would say... People don't say it as much anymore, but you might say, oh, getting into the nitty gritty of something, if you mean getting into the detail. Yes, I know uh, this phrase. But actually, it's believed that the connotations of that um, from the slave trades, um, when, yeah, so when black people might not have facilities to wash and their hair was unkempt and then potentially getting nits, etc. So... This comes up and I think people are seeing lots of these things at the moment and raising them. And naturally you're seeing with like the technical language, so like blacklist, whitelist, and there's pushback coming and saying, you know, but you know, this has been part of our language for a long time, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's a similar argument to accessibility where we need to look beyond, you know, we may be able to access something without any need for additional technology, fine. In the same way that we may be able to read something and not be triggered by it and feel completely fine with it. We are not all of our users. So I think we have a duty to have compassion and show understanding to things that will either be barriers, physical barriers, but also emotional barriers. So language can be really, really triggering for people. And we see this a lot. So with people that may have dyslexia, and I've got lots of family members that have dyslexia. And if they can't maybe understand a word or it's unfamiliar because it's overly confusing or complex, that will then trigger lots of things in them where they'll think about, you know, they might feel stupid or they will feel unconfident, etc. And then they will not read the rest of it because it will have kind of triggered this reaction in them. So what I'm saying is I think that we have to really start thinking beyond, well, it's okay for me, it works for me, or, you know, we're being you know, overly liberal or whatever, and start thinking about the impact that our language can have on people because it is far beyond just, you know, words on a page. Like words have a real emotional impact, not to mention people being able to complete a task. It's thinking about both that functional and the emotional impact that words, words can have. Uh, try to talk to plural amount of men and as they were women in Hebrew and you will see a lot of people of getting offended but if yeah. you will do the opposite yeah. it's not going to happen because that's the normal and that's yeah. kind of crazy so yeah. as you said like uh, language is evolving and we're trying to change it and also when we write microcopy in Hebrew there is a huge discussion about how to create like we just avoid like making it about male or female, just trying to make it not about that, but then it's, it's make it extremely challenging, extremely challenging, yeah. but we're up for the challenge because we don't want to 
people feel like we're not addressing them, you know? 100%. And that's the important thing, isn't it? It's the intent and the want and the open-mindedness to, to do better, you know? And we're not going to fix any of these things overnight, but I think we have to be open to feedback more than ever and open to trying and iterating um, and seeing what we can do, what we can do better and how we can be more inclusive in our content for sure. Thank you for your answer. I've seen that you had a talk in uh, early content, I think. Uh, it was a conference and it was about working with uh, uh, a collaboration between designers and writers. So what would be a tip for working better with designers as a UX writer? And the content strategies. Yeah, good question. To get you know that seat at the table in design critics and all of that. Yeah, I think a really important one, and there's some simple logistic things. So I think one thing that's always really useful is when you're working with a multidisciplinary team. Is at the beginning. Understanding the requirements of the brief, the problem you're trying to solve, and starting to outline your approach and when you're going to collaborate, when you're going to converge and come together, and when you might want some focus time to design, etc. Because I think sometimes the issue can be is that content designers or UX writers can be pulled in lots of different directions, but having a clear view and saying, okay, so for user research, let's do that together. And one thing I found useful when working with researchers is just explaining that when you're observing research, you tend to pick up on different things as a UX writer or content designer. So while lots of people might be looking, you know, have they got through the journey? Have they used it okay? Have they clicked in the right places? We'll be listening to the words that they're saying and we'll be yeah, looking at how they're digesting language, etc. So really kind of being really clear on, you know, what your role will be in that research and what you're kind of listening and what you're looking out for and what the benefits of that will, will be. I also think that as much as possible, getting yourself involved and, you know, being really open to sketching sessions and collaborative sketching sessions. And I think that's really important because I think sometimes as writers, we can be a bit like, oh, Oh, that's strange, isn't it? Like, it's not necessarily um, our thing. But yeah, being part of that design process and I would say like being unapologetically part of that design process. I think sometimes the, the notion of writers and UX writers not having a seat at the table can almost be a bit of a barrier. And then we can go, okay, well, we're not included. So we're just going to sit over here and do our thing. Fine. But actually, like, go and pull up that chair and go and sit at the table and get involved in sketching and, you know, go and look over someone's shoulder and ask, you know, if they, you can supply them any proto content, see their process and understand that a little bit more. And yeah, I would say like be bold with it and, and know that you have as much right to be at that table as everyone else in the design process. Like I'm biased, but you know, content is at the heart of every step of the design process. So there should be no kind of asking, can I be at the table? Like you should absolutely, yeah, feel completely entitled to be there. 100%. And it's funny how like still today, not all of the companies like understand the, the value of having uh, a dedicated writer that like listen 
to you in every step of the way. But we get, we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah, definitely. And I think one thing I do in um, when I've done a couple of talks before is taking all of the written content out of experiences mm-hmm. and just having like lovely, beautiful boxes <laughs> and components. But good luck understanding, navigating, using those experiences. Um, and that seems to really help show, yeah, how important it is. Exactly. I'm, uh, I'm down for that example, 100%. Do you have any... We're getting to the end of the interview. My last question is about any professional books or articles or people that you recommend to follow and for people that just getting into the field and they want to learn more about uh, UX writing and content design. Yeah, so many. So, so many. Let's go Every- with the book, maybe. Oh, so Rachel McConnell's book on building a content team is really important for everyone. So What's it's, the name of the book? It's How to Build a Content Team? Mm, by Rachel, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's what it's called. Yes. But I think it's not, it's not just aimed at you know, people in leadership positions. One of the things that's in there is a really good maturity model. Mm-hmm. Um, so understanding where you're at at the moment with your content design, you know, how mature it is and where you need to go to kind of get ahead and some really practical tips in terms of doing that. And yeah, various articles, articles from her as, as well. Amazing. I'll share it also in the show notes as well. Thank you. All right. Andy, thank you so much for uh, being here today. It was lovely to uh, chat with you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and uh, have a gr- great uh, week. Stay uh, healthy. That's the most important thing to do these days, right? Definitely. You too. Take it safe for sure. All right. And uh, have a good one. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Writers in Tech. If you like our podcast, then leave us a rating and subscribe so you're updated when a new show comes out. For more UX writing goodies, sign up for our UX writing newsletter at uxwritinghub.com. Thanks again. And that's all for this week.